You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. To find more resources and learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. Today we're going to Joshua chapter 9, starting in verse 1 through 15. And just to catch you up, if you're just joining us in this story, we're looking at this this sliver of history within uh, God's people and his uh, dealings with them and their inhabitants into the promised land and all the challenges that they're facing in the midst of that and preparation for that in taking, um, in taking of God's uh, blessed land that he has promised to them. And today we see another challenge. Uh, Joshua chapter 9, starting in verse 1. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended with worn out patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes and all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, we've come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, perhaps you live among us, then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you and where do you come from? They said to him, from a very distant country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord, your God. We've heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provisions in your hand for the journey and go meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. This is God's word. Today we encounter a story of deception. A story of deception. A a nation that tricks Israel into believing that they are someone that they are not. That they are, in fact, a distant nation far off that they don't have to worry about or challenge in order to take the land. And tricking them to think that they're far off when indeed they are not even 20 miles away, a neighboring country. Deception is a a widespread tactic in our world as a means of making people believe something that is not true, to believe something that is in fact a lie. And no more clearly do we see this in our culture than the YouTube sensation, is it real or is it cake? Let's play a little bit together, okay? Is it real or is it cake? Let's see. It is cake. We got another one. Is it real or is it cake? 
Quinn says cake. Let's see what it is. It is cake. It's always cake. Let's do another one. <clears throat> is it real or is it cake? What is it? It's cake. <sighs> oh, no, we got another one up there, I think. Is it real or is it cake? Let's see what it is. Oh, it's real. <laughs> so there's like 15 more of these. Um, we've, okay, is, it, is, is, it, is one, two, or three cake? Two. Okay, who says one? All right, who says two? Who says three? All right, let's see which one it is. It's one. One is cake. You all have been, been deceived. Quinn wins. <laughs> so our story is this strange story of deception. Segway. And... And they're trying to trick. They're trying to put on this show. They're putting on this outward appearance. This is who we are. This is real. You can trust us. We're good. We're your friends. We're your servants. We're here to help you. And in fact, they're a lie. And word has spread of Israel's defeat of the neighboring nations. And many of the nations have gathered together to form a coalition, a coalition against Israel. And so all these neighboring nations, they're picking up on the, on the defeat of these, of these nations by Israel. And they are getting together to create a coalition to go against Israel and to defeat them with the exception of the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites say, we're not winning against Israel. They have the, the, the God they have God, the Lord, with them. He is on their side. Our only hope is to not to go hand-to-hand -hand with them, but to trick them, to manipulate them, and, which is so interesting. They know they can't defeat God, but they think that they can trick him, and they're wrong about that too. And so they get these really old wine bags, and they get these old shoes and clothes, and they get this old food, and they approach Israel, and they say to Israel, look, we've come from so far away. These clothes and shoes were brand new when we left. And we've traveled for so long on these dusty roads that this is what has happened to our clothes. They're old and tattered. The wine that we put in these wineskins were brand new, but along the way we've had to patch them up, sew them together, and they have burst at the seams. Look at them. And this food that we have was warm from the oven when we left our houses, and now it's cold. I mean, that could have been like five minutes ago. But here they are, like, look at this old, crumbly, stale food. It was freshly made. That's how far we've traveled. I read this story a lot, and, and each time I thought, what is this for us? I mean, what do we have to learn here? Why do we need to know this? Why does Joshua tell us this story? Why, does, why is this part of the history of Israel preserved for us, this deception and trick, and they just find themselves in here? Why does he tell us? Well, one, because it really happened, and it's part of God's history it's part of his people's history. It's part of our history. And two, because God has given Israel the promised land. He has given the land over to them, but he doesn't give it to them on a silver platter. He doesn't give it to them on a silver platter. And to, to fully receive it, to fully enjoy all that God has given to them, Israel must navigate in their life deception, sin, sin from themselves and inward in their own family and camp, sin that comes from the outside, challenges and conflicts of many kinds. And they are not told exactly how to navigate every situation that they encounter. This story is told to us because our life is a lot like this one. Our life is a lot like theirs. We are told of God's love. We're told of his grace. We're told of his forgiveness of sin, the future that awaits us. 
We're told of the, of, of the justification that comes by grace through faith. And then we encounter challenges every single day where we are not told step by step how to act faithfully and how to act with wisdom. And it can cause confusion and challenges. It could cause even missteps and failures. And God's provision, he wants us to know through this story that we're going to encounter things like this where we won't get it right, but his wisdom is for us. Here's some important observations and lessons from this story of deception. One is that we see the failure to seek God's wisdom. We see how to be faithful when others aren't, and we see hope for those who fail. Let's look first at the failure to seek God's wisdom. The trick was well thought through. It was masterfully executed. What will the Israelite leaders do? Will they go with what the evidence tells them or will they follow the law of God, which tells Joshua previously and, and, and through other scriptures, we see even the book of Numbers that we are told that the law of God doesn't cover every situation in our lives. And sometimes when we're confused, if there's not a, a clear answer from God's word, we are to seek counsel with the Lord. We are to seek the wisdom of God through the priest that is among them and seek through uh, the counsel of other uh, godly people. But verse 14, it tells us this sad reality and the turning point of this story. It's not what Joshua did. In verse 14, so the men took some of these provisions but did not ask counsel from the Lord. They took these old clothes and shoes and wineskins and crumbly bread and said, well, the evidence suggests and, and is clear and shows us that they did, in fact, come from a distant place. Their story matches up. This is a slam dunk situation here. We do not have to be afraid of them. They're not a, a nation that is in the land that God has promised to us. And it's this foolishness of theirs that comes from this self-confidence it's, it's this self-confidence or this foolish confidence that is navigating life's decisions based upon their own wisdom, their own sense of things, their own gut feeling, their own logic. logic. But here's the problem that we see so clearly in their story is that have you ever considered that your deeply held beliefs, your deeply held uh, logic and gut feeling can be very wrong? so blinded to the reality. Israel makes the most serious of alliances that can be made, the most serious of alliances with a neighboring country based upon their own wisdom that is completely flawed. This alliance that is made with an oath between them and God. They are making this covenant that cannot be broken. And to go back on their covenant is to go back on their word before the Lord. And so this story means to impress upon us that it is possible to suffer from a lack of wisdom that it can only come from God, that we can be very intelligent, smart, logical, that we can be very rational beings with a lot of great experience in our life and very well accomplished in our life. And yet there's a wisdom that we need that can only come from God. And if we don't seek it, we will not have it. They studied the food, they studied the clothes, they studied the wine sacks and the shoes, and they determined that the story that they were bringing was legitimate. And so their failure was not a failure of leadership. It wasn't a failure of intelligence. It wasn't a failure of being logical. They asked all the right questions. They were suspicious on all the right points. 
but they failed to do the one thing and it became the most critical thing of all. They failed to seek counsel from God. I want you to hear this important point today. The difference between faithful living and foolish living doesn't often come down to a failure to think accurately, but rather a failure to pray, a failure to seek God. We could have all the smarts and all the plans. We can, have all, we can weigh all of the options, but oftentimes the difference between faithful and foolish is a failure to go to God and seek his counsel. God's wisdom is available to them and they ignore it. God has made himself available to them to ask anything, to seek him out, and they think that they are not in need of that in this moment. God's wisdom is available to us. Let's not ignore it. Let's, let's not ha- enter into that tragedy of ignoring it. And so he's teaching his people a valuable lesson. He's teaching us a valuable lesson, lesson that in the course of our lives, in the midst of confusion, and deception and struggle in this world and encountering situations in our life where the Bible doesn't have a clear answer for how to live or what to do. There is never a situation that you and I will encounter that seems too obvious as to not need God's wisdom. There will never be a situation where we say, I think I've got this. I don't need to discern God's will or wisdom for my life. What does that mean? Let me take it too far for a second, and then we'll kind of take it, I think, more appropriately. Here's too far. Do we need to ask God, do we need to pray for every single decision that we make? Does it mean in every single decision we need to ask God's wisdom on? You know, like, God, please open up a parking space at Target today for me, you know? I mean, just do drive up, you know, and, you know, is it a shorts day or is it a pants day? You know, God, is it chicken or fish? It's always fish for Jesus. And, and what is it? What are the, all these little decisions? Here's the principle here. So it's not like, okay, every single decision, we walk around paralyzed in fear that if we don't seek God's will and wisdom, that we're not walking faithfully before him. Here's the principle. It's not that we would abandon ourselves to the wisdom of God, meaning that we just turn off our brains and turn off our intellect and turn off our capabilities and to say, okay, I'm nothing. It's just all God's will. And as we walk around, just asking God to reveal himself and everything, but it's that we would lean fully on his wisdom in all things. We don't abandon ourselves to the wisdom of God, but we lean on God in all things. We see that there's not a single situation in our life where we are not dependent upon God's wisdom in order to live faithfully before him. It means that we are in every situation, we are fully aware of that subtle sin, that subtle sin that is hard to find sometimes And it's that subtle sin of thinking, I have this under control. I don't need God's insight. I know what to do here. I can give God the backseat on this one. And it's in those moments where we think that we have it, that we've got it under control, that we think that God doesn't need to be involved, that we actually realize how truly dependent upon him that we are. Where do you desire to be fully in control? Where do you desire to be fully capable in your life, fully logical, fully intellectual? Where do you desire, what area of your life do you feel, you know, God is good for a lot of things, but then there's certain things I feel like I got a good grasp on and I can handle this without him. It is a myth and one of the greatest lies of Satan to convince us that we can do it. 
even in the areas that seem so obvious to us. And Joshua 9 warns us of such cocky independence, frankly, this independence and self-confidence. And we are told that God's wisdom is readily available to those who desire it, if we would just ask for it. So what happens when we, like, like Israel, what happens when we find ourselves in situations that result in foolishness and deception of others? We, we really need to ask, how, what does it look like to be faithful when others aren't? And that's the story continues, right? They are deceived. They enter into this covenant. They're kind of, they feel stuck into this. But what do we do when people around us are not playing by the rules that God has asked us to play by? Joshua gives us a snapshot into the principle of being faithful when others aren't. So here's what happens. The Gibeonites trick Israel. Joshua makes an oath with them based upon the evidence that they give. The deception later on in this chapter is revealed. They find out that they've been lied to. Joshua holds to his oath, even though that the oath was made in deception. And the people of Israel are furious. The people of Israel are so frustrated with Joshua. They're frustrated with their leaders. They are so angry. They say, why would you keep this promise with them when they tricked us? They, this promise to take care of them and to, to spare their lives and to make a covenant with them that we would, that we would be allies, it was made upon the premise that they, that they were a distant country. But they lied to us, so all bets are off. And Joshua says, no. Joshua maintains his oath, even though the oath was based on a lie. How difficult this must have been. I mean, for us, it, it seems it's so irrational, so unreasonable that, that Joshua would keep to this oath even after realizing the people he made this oath with were liars and cheaters and deceived them. How easy it would have been for Joshua to say, oh, I'm sorry, the deal is off and then just slaughter the, the whole nation. I think of Joshua sometimes as, as a pastor in a way that he's a, he's a leader of God's people. And he makes a decision, and the whole entire church is against him. And they're all furious. I know the temptation must have been so strong to appease the grumbling of God's people. And Joshua and the leaders are courageous, not in their own character or their own intellect, but they're courageous in honoring God over the wishes of the people. It is so difficult to do the right thing. I want you to think about this in your own context, in your own areas where you are called to be faithful and to live a way that honors God, and you're in a context that is faithless and doesn't play by the rules of honoring God and not really even concerned with doing the right things. And let's say people make promises and they don't care if they go back on them. And you're in the midst of this and wondering, well, how do I live in this kind of context, in this culture, playing by these rules? It is difficult to do the right thing. And, I, and we need to realize it is near impossible to do the right thing when everyone else is against you. Imagine this, Joshua, the leader of God's people, and he says, here's what we're going to do. And they all say, you're crazy. How easy would it have been for him to be like, just to appease them and say, you're right. I, I appreciate that point of view. Um, let's, let's weigh all options. I hear you. And, and to say, you know, we'll, maybe, maybe we'll, we'll change our mind. But Joshua knows this, is that our faithfulness is not contingent upon the faithfulness of others. 
our faithfulness is not to be contingent upon the faithfulness of others. In all this grumbling, Joshua silences those who are grumbling against him and those who are in disagreement with him who says, just be off with the deal. Just change your mind. Just change your oath. I mean, it wasn't even, it was just made upon a lie. But Joshua silences their grumbling with this in verse 19 to 20. He says, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. The leaders of Israel defend their oath in this way. We don't serve them. We serve God. We are going to make a decision not based upon their sin. We're going to make a decision based upon what God has called us to. He has called us to be true and to be faithful and to be people of integrity. Our oath matters not because of their integrity. Our oath matters because of the character of God. It doesn't matter based upon the character of the Gibeonites or anybody else. Who wants to, in in this defense that he says, like, we swore to God. And wrath is going to come upon us if we go against our promise to God independent of what they do or say or how they feel or what what rules they play by. And by saying this, he's saying to the people, who wants to go before God and tell them why we, we broke our oath? Who wants to stand before God and tell them why we're not going to be faithful to what we said? Who is prepared to defend themselves before the God with this argument? Well, they went back on their oath, and so we went back on ours. They started it. This is the classic, like, they started it defense. And Joshua says, that's not how we live. We live for God. We don't make decisions based on what other people are doing. And I think this is such a good principle for us today. For we live in a culture, and it may be our our government, it may be our neighbor, it may be our family members, it may be friends and coworkers, it may be our children or our spouse, it may be anyone that we encounter that chooses to live in a way that is inconsistent with the character of God, and it will sometimes make us feel that we then have permission to do the same. Because the rules have changed. If you're going to lie, well then, we just need to lie to survive. And Joshua says, we don't serve them. We don't live based upon their character. We live based upon the character of God and what he's called us into, and God will take care of us. The principle here, it's, it's not blind legalism, but to, here's the principle, to live as faithfully as you possibly can before others who are not. It is to live as faithfully as you can in a world that is not faithful. There will be situations that, that you and I will encounter where we will feel that we've been deceived, that we have been lied to, that we've been tricked, that, that things have not been fair. And that doesn't give us an excuse to not be fair. It means that we can still be faithful witnesses. And remember, we're not being faithful witnesses to our character. We're being faithful witness to the God that we follow and the God that we serve. And so we're honoring God. We're glorifying God as we are true to what he's called us to. We are true to his word. It's not an attitude of, well, if you're going to compromise faithfulness, then I'm going to compromise It is God calls us into something completely different. He says, 
Bless those who curse you. Remain faithful when people remain faithless. Serve those who are, serve your enemies. Love your enemies. Don't retaliate against those who wish harm against you. It's completely upside down from the way the world works. And Joshua is right. That's why it's so uncomfortable. That's why it's so ridiculous. Joshua is right. And it, and it seems so foolish. Everyone thinks that it's, this, it's just a silly thing to do. Why would you keep this oath? They, they lied to you. This says so much less about our character and so much more about the character of the God that we proclaim. And a good principle for us in how to be faithful when others aren't in our life. But lastly, this passage, I think, points to the hope for those who, who really make a mess of it all. A hope for those who fail. We see failure on, on, on the Gibeonite side, and we see failure on the Israelite side. Who fails in this passage? Everybody. Everybody fails. The Gibeonites are in the wrong, an obvious wrong for their plan of deception and plan of, of, of uh, lying and manipulation. Israel fails for not seeking God's wisdom. And later in the chapter, here is how things are resolved and how things happen in uh, verse 26 to 27. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. So here's what happens. The Gibeonites escape with their life. Their lives are spared, and yet they're cursed to live in, in a place of servitude for the people of God forever, cutting wood, drawing water, all of this in, for the service of uh, temple, in the service of the congregation of God's people, in the service of the worship of God. Israel would have needed to lead this military campaign to de defeat the Gibeonites, but now this oath prevents them from doing that, and they must live peacefully with this neighboring nation. Self-sufficiency and control and deception and scheming are all from the devil. And how does God deal with the devil's schemes? He uses human agents to keep the altar fires in the temple burning, to keep the water supplied in the temple for purification rites for God's people, the very thing that the devil wishes to use to destroy his people, God uses to preserve his people and to further his purposes and to further his glory. Israel would worship God and they would build the temple and they would, they would offer sacrifices of worship to God and the people that tried to deceive Israel would be the ones who would supply that wood and the water that would be used to for their ceremonial cleansing and their purification rites would be drawn and brought from a distance by the Gibeonites. The very thing that, that the devil would want to use to thwart God's plan and to trick God's people and, and to destroy his people, God uses to advance his purposes. And this ultimately is what we are to focus on, ultimately focusing on God's provision even in the midst of our failures. There is hope here for the Gibeonites. There's hope for Israel. Both have failed and both deserve to be destroyed. And yet both are preserved and rescued. 
the greatest plan of the devil and the greatest scheme of all of deception was to kill the son of God in order to dishonor God and to, thwart, to thwart his plans. And it is by this very scheme of the devil that sinners are rescued in thinking that by killing Christ and sending him to the cross to be crucified, that that would be the end of him. And then that would thwart God's plans. Jesus becomes a curse in our place. And only because of Jesus can God turn a curse into a blessing. Only because of Jesus can the Gibeonite deception be turned into an agent of worship for God. Only because of Jesus can the failure to seek God's wisdom of Israel be turned into an opportunity to advance God's glory in the world. Only because of Jesus can God take enemies of God and turn them into members of the community of faith. The Gibeonites were enemies of God. They were pagan worshipers and enemies of God marked to be wiped out from the earth. And they become members of the community of faith, worshiping with the people of God. And generations later, we learn that the Gibeonite people become the people who rebuild the walls around Jerusalem after it's been destroyed. They become people of faith. They become people who are now no longer strangers and aliens of God's people, but they are now people who have received God's mercy and are a part of his community. Only God can do this. Only he can take what is cursed and take what is hopeless and make it into something that is beautiful and that worships him. The Gibeonites deserve to be destroyed, but so did Israel. They deserve to be destroyed once again because of their failure to seek God's wisdom. And both were preserved. Both were preserved. What does this mean? So much. This means so much for us. It means that God will not be outmaneuvered by human deception. That God's plans will not be outmaneuvered by our pretending by our trying to perform and earn our way or to manipulate blessing from him. God will not be outmaneuvered by any force in this world, whether spiritual or natural. God will not be hindered by my foolishness or yours. His plans for your life and desire to give you his grace and love and to bring about his plans for you will not be hindered by your failure to live as he has called you to live. No person is too far gone and no sin is too unforgivable. Whether you feel as an enemy of God or just in a rut and stale in your faith, God is using these challenges, he's using these sins, he's using these foolishness, foolish uh, behaviors and attitudes to advance his purposes. This is the God who loves us and the God that we serve, and it's such good news. And maybe you feel like the Gibeonites. Maybe you feel you've lived a life of deception and lies. You've lived a life trying to manipulate blessing from God through your own good work and your own character. And you don't have to strive in that kind of frenzy of behavior anymore because Jesus lived the life that you were supposed to live. 
and he died the death you deserve to die. Maybe you feel like Israel, that you're trying to do everything right and you're, you're faithful a lot. And then there's things that happen and you just, you just blow it. You didn't try to. You didn't try to be wicked. You didn't try to be disloyal. You didn't try to neglect God, but you, you made a mess of something. His provision is for you as well. And so together we come to God and we receive his grace. Thanks for listening to this audio from Holy Cross Church. Visit us at holycrosstucson.com to find more resources and connect with us.